It's good seeing all of you guys. I am so grateful that you made it out in this blistering cold winter's day, but praise the Lord for heat, for the areas that are working, and praise the Lord for warm jackets. Uh, So um, before we get into the Word, uh, let me pray for us as we ask the Lord to make Himself known through His Word. Our Holy Father, I, I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for Your grace. God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you have made yourself known and that you can be known through your word. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts? Can you help us to look to you and be in awe of you? As we talk about eating flesh and drinking blood and feasting on you, Lord Jesus, can you help us to understand what that means? Can you stir in us a a deeper desire to feast on you as we look to you and believe in you? So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, it says turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 47 as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, in the Gospel of John, what John is trying to accomplish is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory. And then later on in the Gospel of John, we're going to see how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose in showing us that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah is to invite us in to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now, now last week we tackled the difficult passage in John chapter 6, verse 22, and we saw how the crowd came asking questions. And instead of Jesus answering their questions, he, ans- he answered the question of their hearts. And the answer to their deep need was to believe in him so that they may have life in his name, that that hunger and thirst can only be satisfied in him and in him alone. But instead, the crowd did not rush to him in faith, but rather they grumbled. They grumbled because they wanted physical uh, 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 provision. They grumbled because they wanted salvation on their own terms. And so Jesus even accused them of their unbelief. And in, in his accusing them of their unbelief, he draws their attention to the sovereignty of God of saving sinners. That, that, that man's salvation is not dependent on man, but rather on the Father granting and drawing and opening up eyes. And this salvation is not dependent on us, but rather on God and in his ability. And so last week we learned that, that Jesus satisfies and fulfills our deepest needs. He is committed in saving us, but also in keeping us. But then he's also inviting us in to come and believe in him. Now today, as we uh, continue this conversation that Jesus has uh, with the crowd uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum, uh, Jesus is now going to call them to come and eat his flesh and drink his blood, to come and feast on him. And so in this metaphorical calling, it became, it became uh, clear to those following Jesus. They could no longer follow Jesus because they believed that his teachings was harsh and offensive. Because what they wanted, Jesus would not give, and what Jesus offered, they did not want, so they could not receive it. So let's look at John chapter 6, verse 47, as we talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. Verse 46 says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh." 
Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand that you can almost take this conversation that Jesus is having with this crowd and break it up in two sections. The first section we talked about last week is the section where where Jesus, even though he used metaphors in a sense of saying he's the bread of life, he spoke in plain terms. In other words, he took the metaphor and plainly unpacked it to what it meant. But since the crowd did not understand the plain words of Jesus that came out of his mouth, now in this section, he's going to talk now in metaphorical terms as he continues to unpack this metaphor. And so right off the bat, Jesus draws a further contrast between the manna in the wilderness that God provided for the people in Exodus and the bread that he provides. In a sense, the contrast, he says, look, this bread that came in the wilderness, this manna that came in the wilderness, even though it might have satisfied you, even though it might have sustained you to be able to live in the wilderness, notice those who ate it still end up dying. In other words, this bread in the wilderness could not give you eternal life, but the bread that I'm giving you, a.k.a. myself, not only comes down from heaven, it also satisfies. But if you eat it, what will happen? You will live forever. You will have eternal life. And so as Jesus identifies himself as the living bread and also the bread of life, which those are synonymous, he now starts to clarify of what this bread is. Look at verse 51. So he was talking about bread, and now he's clarifying what is this bread actually all about. Look at the last sentence in verse 51. It says this, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? Is my flesh. So let's stop here. What does he mean by that? I do think the best way we look at this verse is to look at it in terms of a sacrificial sense. So when Jesus is the bread of life, he's not giving us bread to eat, but rather he's giving us himself. John has already described Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. And now what Jesus is doing in a sacrificial sense, he's hinting of what he's going to do. He's going to give his life by giving his flesh, which shows us this sacrifice is voluntary. But it also shows us that this sacrifice is given to who? Life for the World, which means not only is the sacrifice voluntary, but the sacrifice is sufficient for all, for the whole world. So now what Jesus is saying is, what is this bread? It's himself. It is his flesh that he is sacrificially giving, that's sacrificially sufficient for the entire world. Everybody understands? Okay. Look at how the crowd responded in verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now let's stop here. I think anybody reading this text with some logic would clearly understand that Jesus is not talking literally. Jesus is not supposing that we should all become cannibals and he is the very first meal we should be eating, okay? Which means if this language is figurative, that the crowd not understand it, or what did it mean when the crowd was arguing among themselves? So when we read verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I will propose, it's not because they're that slow and they thought Jesus was talking about literal, but rather what they were doing is they could not come to an agreement on what Jesus meant by giving his flesh to eat. One man was arguing this point, another man was arguing that point. They couldn't come to a consensus in what it meant, so instead they continued to repeat the same literal, unintelligent question at the point how can this man give us his flesh to eat in other words we cannot agree on what it means what 
does it mean? And so Jesus responds in verse 53. Now, before we look at verse 53, um, let let me kind of just maybe kind of ease yourself as as we're looking at the text. How many of you would say, Neil, this, this last two weeks have been very complicated and difficult to understand? Like, yeah, I think I had to put in a couple extra hours just for me to somehow understand it because if I don't understand it, I can't teach it. But, but, but I think what makes the text so complicated is because what Jesus basically is saying is the same thing. He's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. He might introduce an extra point on unpacking what he's already saying, but he is basically repeating the same truth. So if we look at verse 53, we're going to see verse 53 and 54, and the rest of the points is basically him saying the same thing by just kind of adding points. So so let's stick with it. Let's focus on the main things. What is Jesus saying? And by understanding that, then all of a sudden we won't get lost in the small details of this passage. Everybody follow? All right, look, let's look at verse 53 here. Notice, again, it's going to be the same truth over and over again. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Okay. 53, 54, same truth. 53, notice this, it puts the truth in a conditional term. In other words, what Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you don't have life. So what's the condition of life? Eating and drinking the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. Verse 54 is stating the same truth, but in a positive sense. It says, Whoever eats my flesh, whoever drinks my blood has eternal life. Same truth, the one puts in a conditional term and the other one puts it in a positive term. Now, as Jesus is repeating the same truth, there there are a couple of things to to point out here. Two, Two important truths here. Notice the first one is the one whose flesh is eaten and whose blood is is drank is he has the title son of man so we need to pay attention to this title son of man what does this title mean what does it mean by jesus bearing the title son of man real quick in a sense jesus is a man which means he has flesh to be eaten blood to be drank but he's more than just simply a man Because he's also the one whom God set his seal of approval. We saw that last week. He is the bread from heaven. He came from God. He reveals God to us. And we're going to read that he's also the one who descends and then ascends to where he was before. So thus, the the Son of Man is thus a title that speaks of Jesus as the man where God is simply revealed. The one whose flesh, the Son of Man, unlike the flesh of any other man, must be eaten in order to gain eternal life. That's the first thing we have to understand. So the one who offers his flesh and drinks his blood refers to himself the title Son of Man. He is man, he has flesh and blood, but he is more than just simply man because he comes from God. God set his seal of approval of him. He's the bread from heaven. He reveals God, and he who descended will also ascend. Everybody understand that? Okay. If you don't, that's fine. We'll we'll move on. The second thing that we need to note is, in the beginning in verse 51, he only talked about eating flesh. But now in 53 and in 54, he's adding not just the eating flesh, but also what? Drinking his blood. And I think it's significant to to point out because the Jews, in a sense of his statement of eating his flesh, that's just offensive 
But now adding drinking his blood, that's like a double offense because the law of Moses forbid drinking of blood. It even forbid eating meat with blood in it. And so in a sense, when Jesus is adding to drink the blood of the Son of Man, that was like extra repulsive to them. Now, some of you, you're thinking, okay, those points are nice. The title is Son of Man. He's adding drinking the blood. But, but let's talk about what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Like, what does it mean? Is he literally talking about we need to be eating his flesh and we need to be drinking his blood? Is he referring to the Lord's Supper, if you grew up a Roman Catholic or Lutheran, the Eucharist? Is it referring to the Eucharist? Well, let's, let's kind of talk about it. And here's a rule and what I'm trying to teach you. Um, when you don't understand a verse, what do you do? You look at the entire context of that verse. So in other words, you look at verses before or verses after. And hypothetically, let's say the verses before or after is not helping you understand the rest of the text. Understand the text, where do you go to? Then you go through the whole of Scripture. But fortunately for us, I do think there are verses in the passage that clarifies for us verses 53 and 54. Okay? So in your Bibles, put your finger on verse 54 and also put your finger on verse 40. Let's look 54 first. Verse 54 says, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay? What does that verse mean? Well, I do think if we look at verse 40, there is a close parallel in verse 40. So let's look at verse 40. That everyone who sees the Son and believe in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the close parallel between these two verses. One verse refers to eating and drinking, while well, the other verse speaks of looking or seeing and believing. Both of them are very similar. We'll say, we'll have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see that in the text? So I do think a good conclusion is that verse 54 is a metaphorical way of referring to verse 40. Because of the end result. Verse 54, you eat, you drink the flesh, drink the blood, you have eternal life, and God will raise you up in the last day. Verse 40 says, if you see, if you look, and you believe in him, you will have eternal life, and he will raise you up on, uh, on the last day. So basically, what does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood? Verse 40 clarifies it to us. Look to him, believe in him. And even in our ancient church fathers, Augustine of Hippo says, to believe you have eaten. So the very first thing, what does it mean for, 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 for us to eat the flesh and to drink the blood of Jesus? It's a metaphorical way of saying, looking to him and believing in him. Everybody understands that? Okay. Let's say hypothetically you're like, okay, Neil, I don't think that's clear, but what other evidence do you have? If we believe that it is literally eating and drinking, and that the only purpose of this passage is to point us to the Lord's Supper, to point us to the Eucharist, that means in order to gain eternal life, what must you do? You must come to the table. You must hold up this sacred elements and you must eat and you must drink and somehow it will transfigure into your body and you will now have eternal life. If we say that, then it seems like verse 54 and verse 40 is contradicting because 54 is saying, come to the table, eat and drink so you can have eternal life. But verse 40 says, 
Look and see, and you'll have eternal life. It's like, well, now it's contradicting. Which one is it? Is it eating and drinking or looking and believing? But it's not saying literally eating and drinking. Also, another reason is the fact that Jesus will add, and I will raise him up at the last day. What is that showing? What it is showing us, it's not the eating and the drinking that gives us eternal life and provides us a a resurrection, immortality, power, but rather we still have to be raised up on the last day, which means communion is not some recipe for immortality. There is no magic in the Eucharist because even after you eat and drink it, you still die. But what's the promise? He's going to come. And what is he going to do? He's going to raise you up on the last day. Now, even though I do believe this text does not directly speak of the Lord's Supper, I do think what it does is it exposes the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Because what it does is it drives us back to Jesus and the saving significance of his life and death and resurrection. In a sense, what it does is we come to this table and we feast on Christ by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And when we do it, what are we doing? We're looking to Christ. We're believing in Christ. Like like think about just our lives here. What we're going to find out in Scripture, our lives are full of distraction. There's so many things in your life that's drawing your attention away from Jesus. There's so many things that you're falsely pursuing, thinking it will give you life, thinking it will give you meaning and satisfaction. Week in, week out, and every day we tell ourselves, I need to focus. I need to stop doing this. this. This is not going to satisfy me. This is not going to give me meaning. And then all of a sudden, what do I do? Like a moth to a a light, I just go in that direction and I continue to go. And then I wake up and like, man, this, this is not going to help. This is not going to save. And what does the Lord's table do? The Lord's table, in a sense, is a visible sign of saying, focus. Look to Christ. Believe in Christ. Come and don't feast on the temporary foods that might make you happy but will never fully satisfy. Come and feast on Christ. Eat his flesh and drink his blood because by doing it, you're looking to him as you are only, your eyes are fixed on him and you believe that he satisfies and he fulfills and what he's done for you is enough. And this is what Jesus is saying. Everybody understands that. I was not going to unpack transubstantiation and consubstantiation. I didn't want to confuse you. All right, let's look at verse 57 here. Jesus continues. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so that no one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so what we have to understand in the passage real quick, and I don't want to spend too much time because I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. Jesus lives because of the Father. In other words, because of the Father's determination that Jesus should have life in himself. And those who feed on Jesus do not have life in themselves, but rather have life in Jesus. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, we live not because we have life in ourselves, but we live because of Jesus' determination. So in other words, we cannot have life independent on Jesus. So when we feast on him, when we look to him and believe in him, we have life in him because now we are connected to Jesus. We are in him and he is in us. And look at how now the crowd responded in verse 60 to all that Jesus says. Therefore, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is hard. Who 
can accept it. Now, I think it's funny or interesting because, first of all, we have to determine who are these disciples. Now, when we read the word disciples, who are we automatically thinking of? We're thinking of the 12 disciples. But who is the disciples that John is talking about in verse 60? He's not talking about the 12, but rather he's talking about the crowd. And what I find really interesting is that throughout this discourse of taking place, they were referred to as the crowd, they were referred to as Jews, and now in verse 60, they are referred to as disciples. Very interesting. Were they disciples of Jesus? Well, in a sense, they were because what were they doing? They were following Jesus wherever he went. They believed that Jesus was an authoritative teacher, but they did not believe in him. And so the disciples described here, they did not remain in his word because Jesus eventually is going to tell us that his true disciples are those who continue in his word. And here, these disciples cannot remain in his word. Why? Because they find his teaching hard to accept. Now what we have to understand here, the Greek word for hard does not mean hard to understand. Okay, let's not miss that. Because for many of us, we like, yeah, they're walking away because they could not simply understood what Jesus said. No. It wasn't because they could not understand. Because the Greek word for hard means harsh and offensive. In other words, the reason why they no longer could remain in Jesus' words, the reason why they no longer could follow Jesus is because they found his teaching to be harsh and offensive. Well, why? Well, because in a sense, these disciples were more interested in physical provision. They were more interested in their political agendas. They were more interested in miracles than actually Jesus had to offer them. They were unwilling to surrender their own authority, even on religious matters, and therefore were incapable of taking the first step of faith. They were offended by the claims that Jesus made, claims to be from God, claims to be greater than Moses, claims to be the living bread, claims to be life in himself and be able to give life to those who come and feast on him. And then the last nail in the coffin was when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have eternal life. And after that, what did they do? We're out of here. And Jesus says in verse 61, Jesus, verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this ass, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man as ascending to where he was before? Really, what's going on here, it's, it's kind of ironic here. Uh, Jesus is teaching these people, his disciples, and his teaching is harsh and offensive, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Jesus, you're losing these people. Why don't you just kind of scale it down a little bit? Just, just take it one notch down to, so maybe be patient with him so they can understand. And you know what Jesus does? He dials it up. He says, you think you're offended by what I've already taught? Can you imagine what will happen when the Son of Man ascends to where he was before? In other words, what he is saying, you think that eating my flesh, drinking my blood, and everything that I've taught is offensive? What about the cross of Christ? Now, for some of you are like, well, Neil, it doesn't say cross here, but rather it says ascending to where he was before. But what has to happen before Jesus' ascension? The cross of Christ. The cross is the way to his ascension. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's pointing to the cross. That in itself will be the most offensive thing. And to the Jews, a Messiah to be crucified was blasphemous, outrageous. That's why even Paul says the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. And yet what happens at the cross? 
At the cross, he accomplishes our salvation. At the cross, he reveals to us who God is because at the cross, we see the love of God and the wrath of God all displayed at once. And so he just leaves that there as he just dials it up for the crowd. And he leaves his question open-ended. And the reason why is because his question demands a response. And the way that men and women respond to this question impacts their destiny. And then it, it tells us, Jesus continues, verse 63, he says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are the Spirit and our life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those did not believe in the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Notice the word, the flesh doesn't help at all. This is why I do believe this text is metaphorically. Because is it the flesh that gives life or the spirit? Is the spirit. And what Jesus is saying in a sense that my words are spirit and life. Don't focus on the little, don't focus on the flesh. The flesh doesn't count for anything. But my words the words of the Spirit and they, the words of life. In other words, if the words of Jesus rightly understood, instead of rejecting Jesus, you will see him as the bread from heaven, the one who gives his flesh for the life of the world, the one who provides eternal life. They look to him, believe in him. They will taste and have eternal life and enjoy the promise that he will raise them up on the last day. And this unbelief of these disciples came to no surprise for Jesus because he knew from the beginning. And this is why even in verse 65, he reminds them of the sovereignty of God. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Unless the Lord opens up your eyes and draws you in, you cannot come to me. And then verse 66 says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Which means the whole crowd that were following Jesus from place to place, who saw him as a great teacher, an authoritative teacher from God, all of a sudden saw his teaching as harsh and offensive and wanted nothing to do with him. So in a sense, they walked away. But now Jesus turns and draws attention to the 12. Verse 67, we're almost done. So Jesus said to the 12, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In a sense, what Jesus is doing as the disciples are sitting by and watching everybody leave. Jesus turns around and he challenges them with a question. Like, like Jesus is not asking the question because everybody leaves and he just wants somebody to kind of reassure him that he, he's on the right track. But what he is doing, he is asking the question for their benefits because in asking this question, it demands a response because they need to know why they're following Jesus. And so Peter, as usual, he speaks his mind. Now, I don't think Peter understood everything that Jesus said, but I do think he kind of picked up a couple words. He said, you have the words that are spirit and they are life. And his conclusion is truly you are the Holy One of God. But then verse 70 is very interesting because what Jesus does, he makes it clear to them why they did not abandon him like the rest. Look at verse 70. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the 12? 
Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. I think verse 70, the reason why Jesus says this is because maybe there was this pretentiousness of Peter and the rest of the disciples. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, we're better than the rest. We're doing Jesus a favor of staying. And some of you might even look at the text where Jesus was so proud and say, hey, didn't I choose you? But what Jesus is doing is really saying, hey, don't be fooled here. The only reason why you have not left is not because you're better than them. It's not because you're smarter than them, but because I chose you. And then he even admits that the one he chose is a devil. And the Greek word literally says is the devil. Not a devil, but the devil. Because what it means is that the supreme adversary of God, Satan, operates behind fallen human beings that his malice becomes theirs. And so Jesus correctly labels it. So I've done really hard work to try to explain this passage. So let's get to application here. And even though I do believe I can probably spend another two hours and pull more truths out, we don't have that time. And I don't want to overwhelm you with information. But I think there's one way of looking at the passage that will be very beneficial for us as we kind of understand the truth of the whole passage. I think what this passage does to its core, other than reveal truths to us about Jesus, it confronts all of us in our view and approach of Jesus. Just like in our text, there are many who want to follow Jesus without maybe submitting to his authority. There, there are certain things we want that Jesus is not going to give us, and the very thing he offers we don't really want, so we don't really want to receive it. And we have a tendency, all of us, to settle for the temporary pleasures of this world. We chase after it, and as we chase after these things, as we settle for these things, thinking that they will satisfy what we're doing, just like the crowd and the disciples that abandoned Jesus, as we miss out on the eternal life that he offers and the true life that can only be found in him. We settle for the feasting of temporary things thinking it will nourish, thinking it will sustain and satisfy. And in a sense, it might nourish us a little bit. In a sense, it satisfies us for a little bit and sustains us for a little bit. But it certainly does not endure. Instead, what this text is showing us is quit feasting on these things. Feast on Jesus Christ, who gives his flesh for you. And he promises to raise you up on the last day. And the reason why I think this text is so relevant to us today is because we find ourselves in a culture where many are abandoning the teachings of Jesus because it's harsh, it's offensive, and in a sense, all of us are confronted by the very same question that Jesus asked the 12 disciples. You don't want to go away too, do you? And notice it's not a rhetorical question. It's a question that demands a response. It is a question that demands us articulating who Jesus is. And without us asking this question and answering this question and articulating who Jesus is, we will be just like the disciples. The second his teaching becomes harsh and offensive, what do we do? I can't believe that. I can't follow that. 
And what we've done is we've become a little bit more sophisticated than the disciples in those days. They just plain on left them. But what do we do? We change his teaching to accommodate us. It's the exact same thing as abandoning Jesus. And so here's the question that Jesus is asking this morning. In a sense, who do you say I am? And I think there's the two truths in, in, in uh, answering this question that we can learn if you're taking notes. Finally, here's note-taking. Is this, being a disciple is costly. Like, like we have to understand this. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly. Like a disciple doesn't just sit back and, and watch, Jesus, watch Jesus perform a couple miracles and our hearts are so encouraged by the miracles and the provision that Jesus provides in his miracles, but rather the calling of a disciple is to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves, to walk away from the pleasures of this world that it offers us and say, no, you do not satisfy only Jesus can satisfy, and the only way we can do that is by denying ourselves. When the world is telling us, ooh, look at this sparkly thing. Look how happy it will make you. What do we do? We deny ourselves and say, yeah, that's nice. But it does not endure. It does not satisfy. It cannot compare to what Jesus has to offer. A disciple is called not just to lay down their lives, but also to remain in the words of Jesus. Even the parts that we don't fully understand, even the parts that we feel harsh and offensive. Because you know what that requires of us when we believe the teachings of Jesus is hard and offensive and difficult to understand and our flesh want to say, clearly he could not mean it. You know what that requires when you remain in his word? Faith trusting that he knows better, that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that his words is the word of God. They are spirit and life. I don't think a disciple has to understand every single word and every single teaching of Jesus because clearly there are many things we do not understand. Even verse 65, like, what does that look like that we can't come to the Father with, we'll come to Jesus without the Father granting us? That doesn't seem fair. That seems harsh. That seems offensive. That seems so exclusive. And yet, what do we do with that text? We read it, we believe it, because the words of Jesus is spirit and life. We remain in his word. Being a disciple is costly. Last thing is, not only is it costly, but being a disciple is always worth it. Like it is always worth it. Like in the cost of following Jesus, where we deny ourselves and we remain in his word, what does Jesus promise? He promises, in our text we learn that he promises to satisfy us, to fulfill us. He promised to give us life, eternal life. He promises to raise us up on the last day. In other parts of, of the word, he promised us to be with us, that we will never be alone. He promises us there will be a day where our suffering and our sorrow will be forever gone, that all of the pain and life that we have experienced cannot be compared to the worth we have in Jesus Christ when he raises us up on the last day. Like, think about this. What other things comfort us when we're hurting? What water can quench the thirst of your soul? Like, like what bread can satisfy the need of your heart? What provision endures forever? Only Jesus. And this is what he is saying. And by saying this, remember, what is John trying to do in his gospel? Why did John include this in his gospel and not the other writers? 
because John is trying to invite you in to believe in him. And I think this is the invitation that John shows us. This is the invitation that Jesus gave to the crowd. Come and feast on me. Come and eat my flesh and drink my blood. In a sense, come and look to me and believe in me. And you will have life. And I will raise you up on the last day. And so as we get ready to sit at the table, think about your life. Think about all the distractions. Think about all the empty promises. Think about the sin that you're struggling with. Think about the doubts that you're going through. Think about some of the anger and the pain that you are experiencing. What's the solution to all of this? Come and feast on him. What is this table? It is a visual representation. It is a picture that I can show you and say, stop looking at these things and look to Christ. Where these elements represent his flesh, his body, and his blood. It is an object lesson where we are saying no to ourselves, no to the things of the world and the distracting things. And we come and we feast and we look and believe that he fully satisfies. And who is this invitation for? The invitation is for those who are in Jesus Christ. The invitation are those who are willing to repent of their sins and look to him. And here's one of the things I want us to be able to understand. You're not coming to the table because you had a good week. You're not coming to the table because you had a good week, you confessed all of your sins, and you're squeaky clean. You're coming to the table because you need a Savior. You don't have it all together. And you're willing to confess it as you're trusting in Him looking to him, believing that what he has done for you is enough. That's why you're coming to this table. This is a picture of the gospel. And so um, before we distribute these elements, I want to pray for us. But before I pray, as we distribute these elements, I want you to meditate upon this. What are some of the things in your life that is distracting you? that are promising satisfaction that you're chasing after? What are some of the things that, that, that are taking your affections away from Christ? I want you to confess that. And then I want you to ask the Lord, like, like as you are getting ready to feast, and a.k.a. laser focus on Jesus as you look to him and believe in him, ask the Lord to help you. And as you're eating, believing that he satisfies he fulfills, he nourishes, he sustains, as I can deny myself and say no to these things and say yes to Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll distribute these elements. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son and giving your flesh so that we can have life. I thank you that this table is not something that we invented, but rather, Lord Jesus, you yourself have instituted that when we gather and we've been pulled in all different directions, we can refocus on you as we feast on you. And Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know the things that are distracting them. You know the things they're putting their hope in. You know the things that they are chasing after. And in this moment, can you convict them? Can you open up their eyes? Can you draw them to you? Can you help them to come and feast on you and look to you and believe in you? Can this be a moment where we experience you maybe in a way we've never experienced you, that these gospel truths are not just truths that we regurgitate and recite, but truths that we actually experience as we feel a sense of satisfaction in you. And we're overwhelmed by your mercy and grace and peace. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's distribute these elements. Think about the wonderful privilege we have right now. That Jesus came and invites us to feast on him. He gives us his body. In other words, he lived a life we could not live, and he died a death we were supposed to die. He gives us his blood. Because by his blood, he washed away our sins. He bought us. He satisfied God's wrath. And he establishes a new covenant between us and God. What a wonderful privilege. All I can say is thank you, Lord Jesus. Be reminded of his body that's been given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. Be reminded of his blood that was shed for you, the new covenant you have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take a moment right now and just praise Jesus for his sacrifice? Thank Jesus for the work that he has accomplished for you. Thank Jesus for all the benefits that you have in him. Thank Jesus that he satisfies and he fulfills that he gives life. Lord, my only prayer for us this morning is can you help us to behold you, Lord Jesus? Can you help us to walk out of here in awe of you? so that we can clearly see that the things we're chasing after, the things we're distracted by, cannot compare to the worth of you, Lord Jesus. So that we may walk out of here remaining in your word, looking and believing in you. So that it can become easy for us to deny ourselves because we understand the reality of your worth. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let's worship our King.